Jeremiah 12, verses 14 through 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Let me read this text to us. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I'll pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks for coming. You can be seated. Will you bow with me while you're being seated? Father, I'm glad to be here, and I pray that you would please help us to have hearts that are sensitive and attentive to the word of God being preached this morning. Therefore, I also ask that you would please help me to preach it rightly, accurately, correctly, Lord, and diligently. Lord, I pray that you would please give us ears to hear and help our hearts to be that good soil. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking and moving among us and give us grace to walk in obedience. We love you, and I pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Many of you that I'm looking at this morning, I know, have been, you could say, raised in church. You can remember from long ago when your parents brought you to church. Some of you are children now, and so your parents still are in the act of bringing you to church, right? And it's actually a really huge blessing for us who have been consistently exposed to truth year after year. Because of that, it means we hear truths again and again and again, and they really get programmed into our thinking. We we hear them so often, we've heard them so often, we say, well, of course that's true, of course that's true, of course that's true, and that's a blessing, actually. Now, where it can sort of turn against us, in a way, is when we just hear truths and hear truths and hear truths, and we take them in, but maybe we don't digest them the way that we're ought to. And that's not always a bad thing, because they're in there and praise God for that, but maybe we've not thought through them and thought how they even connect to one another. What do I mean? Well, I've talked to a lot of people and um, just in witnessing conversations, and they've been exposed to truth too. Maybe they're not necessarily churchgoers at the time I'm talking to them, but they've been exposed to enough of it that they know some of the lingo. And in the conversation by this point, we've usually already established that we're all sinners, and we've established that God is just, and he's supposed to punish sin, and And then I'll ask them, why should God forgive you of your sins? And the answer I'll usually get back is something to the effect of, well, because he's he's loving. And isn't that what God's supposed to do? Just be your friend? And so we sometimes don't connect. Yes, God is just. And Yes, God is merciful, but how can he be both? How can he be both? I've talked to a lot of people that don't 
know how that's possible because we know he is both. Like, I've, like I just said, you've heard God is just. He's a good judge. He's the righteous judge of all the earth. And he'll punish them wherever it's found. And you would say, yes, amen. But then I would also say, God's merciful. And he forgives sinners and doesn't bring upon them the punishment that should be brought upon them. And you say, yes, that is true. Amen. But not everyone I've found can say, can explain to me clearly, well, how, is, how are they both true? How are they both true? I've titled the message this morning, Justice and Mercy? Both? Justice and mercy at the same time? How? How? Of course, some of you can connect the dots. Some of you say, Cohen, I know the answer. I could get up there and tell everyone the answer. I'm sure you could, and praise God for that. It's because you've been a student of the Scriptures for a while. It's because God has helped you love the Scriptures enough to wrestle with these truths and say, how can this be? So praise God for that, too. But we're going to see both in our text today. As you already heard me read, we're going to see both. We actually get one of those gems. I call them gems, G-E-M gems, that we find in the prophetic books. Almost every prophetic book has them. It's a gem where the prophets, as you know, the reason why God even raised them up was because of Israel's wickedness, or sometimes even because of the wickedness of other nations like Nineveh, Jonah, went to them. They weren't Jews. He sends them because they're wicked, and he sends prophets to pronounce judgment. But then also, mingled in with the statements of judgment, you'll almost always find these little gems of, but if you'll turn to me, if you'll repent, I will have compassion on you, and I'll forgive you. So here we get one of those today. But it's mingled with justice. So let's look at our text together then. Because he says, starting out, thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors. So this doesn't start out with the Lord talking about the people of Israel. It doesn't begin that way. That They come up. But who's initially referenced here? Well, the evil neighbors of Israel. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. He's talking about the promised land. That's the heritage. That's the inheritance that God gave the people of Israel, this promised land. He promised it to Abraham long ago. That's actually why we call it the promised land, because he promised to give it to Abraham and his descendants. But did you notice the way it's worded? I want you all to be very good students of Scripture. And to be a good student of Scripture, you have to start out with that step of observation. You have to observe what is there. We are people of the book. You must know this. You have to know this. The only reason you're in the faith at all is because you believe the truths from this book. Correct? No one gets saved without believing the truth of the word of God and God has chosen to give us his word not by passing it down by word of mouth not by writing it on the sky for every generation but in the form of the letter and it says thus says the Lord concerning all my evil 
neighbors. Notice the Lord doesn't say, those who are neighbors to my people who have acted wickedly. Those who are neighbors to my people who have acted evil towards them. He doesn't word it that way. He says, my evil neighbors, the evil that was done against his people, the Lord took it personally as if it were done against himself. That's how closely, closely connected we are with the Lord. That's how closely connected we are with God when he adopts us into his family because that's how closely God connects himself to us when we come to him in faith and repentance. It's almost as if we are one. I don't mean one in being. He's God, we're not. But one in family. This comes up in the New Testament as well. Can you think of that time when the Lord Jesus closely connected himself with the persecutions that were being done to his people? You probably do remember this. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. This is what happened to Saul before he became Paul, as we know him. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is Acts 9, verses 3 through 5. Jesus was already ascended into heaven at this point and had been for a little while. But yet, he words it as, you're persecuting me, Saul, because you're touching my people. So you're persecuting me. That's how closely God connects himself with us. Be encouraged by that, right? God takes it personally, just like you perhaps take it personally when someone is, is rude or mean or whatever to someone that you love. You say, hey, watch it. That's, that's my spouse or that's my child. You don't do that. That's how closely God connects himself to us, my evil neighbors. Listen to what Matthew Henry said about this. These evil neighbors were the Moabites, Ammonites, Syrians, Edomites, and Egyptians that had been evil neighbors to Israel in helping to debauch them and draw them from God. Therefore, God calls them his evil neighbors. And now they help to make them desolate and joined with the Chaldeans against them. It is just with God to make those the instruments of trouble to us whom we have made instruments of sin. I want to read that last part again because it is such a good insight. It is just with God to make those the instruments of trouble to us whom we have made the instruments of sin. It's those very things that entice us to sin that can also lead us to our ruin. I'll say this, I'll word it this way, that can and will lead us to our ruin. What do I mean? Well, think about Solomon, the wisest man there's ever been. How? Why? Well, because God gave him that wisdom. Solomon loved many women. Many would be an understatement. How many, Cohen? Seven Hundred wives, 
300 concubines. You heard right. A thousand different women. The scriptures tell us in 1 Kings 11 that it was his foreign wives who turned his heart from the one true God and after the foreign gods. This tendency he had towards sin in that area is what led to his downfall. What about Judas? Judas was the one in charge of the money bag for Jesus and the apostles. Remember that? The Bible tells us in John 12 that from time to time, Judas would help himself to what was in the money bag. And as you recall, it was money that caused him to betray the Son of God. So again, it's the very things that entice us to sin that can and will lead us to our ruin as well. And that's what was going on with the neighboring countries. They had enticed Israel to sin. And now it's one of those very nations that will be the downfall of the people of Israel. The Babylonians are coming as Jeremiah continues to tell the people of Israel. Matthew Henry mentioned the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans lived in the region of Babylonia, in the uh, south, if I'm not mistaken. And so sometimes they would get lumped together because there were nations that overlapped each other. And so that's why he mentioned the Chaldeans. Sometimes you'll hear the Chaldeans are coming, but when it might actually be the Babylonians, they get used interchangeably. So thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors, behold, I will pluck them up from their land. And I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. The Babylonians are the ones who are coming for the people of Israel. And they're going to succeed. They make their third and final wave of attack upon Israel in the year 586 B.C. 586 B.C. That's when the last and final one happened. Where they carried off the last of the people that were going to be captured. And carried them into Babylon which is where the book of Daniel takes place. You might recall in the book of Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den, it's not the king Nebuchadnezzar who comes and says to him, oh, Daniel, has your God helped you? It was King Darius, if you might recall. Because at that point, the Medes had overtaken the Babylonians. So when God says here, behold, I will pluck them up from their land, he's talking about the Babylonians. The Babylonians who plucked up the people of Israel out of their land, God says, and I'm going to pluck them up from their land even. I'm going to punish them for capturing my people. I'm going to punish them for what they did to my people. You might say, wait a second, Cohen. Wait a second, wait a second. So God's going to punish the Babylonians for invading and taking over the people of Israel. But isn't the message in the book of Jeremiah, God saying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to come and invade you for your sin? And now you're saying God's going to punish them for invading the people of Israel? That's what I'm saying. Because that that's what the Bible's saying. How can God do that? How can God empower a nation to carry out his justice and then say, and now I'm going to punish you because what you did was evil. This is why. The Babylonians were doing exactly what their wicked hearts wanted to do. 
They did not become robots one morning and say, oh, what are we doing? I'm calling for all the troops to gather and to go capture this nation called Israel. I don't even want to do this. I can't. No. They wanted to do it. Now, how does it work that their wants perfectly aligned up with God's sovereign plan to do that? Well, I don't know. I don't know. God has that level of understanding figured out that we don't, nor will we ever. And should God even answer you in that? Because sometimes we do want explanations to things. Let me tell you, your heart can be so wayward sometimes and so rebellious and so hard even when you're asking questions like that in that attitude that even if he was to answer you, you might still not like the answer. For those of us who trust the Lord and would never come at him with that kind of attitude, how dare you do this? No, no, no. We might come with the question of how can this be? Just like Mary when Gabriel said, you'll, be con- you'll, you'll conceive. How? I've never been with a man, she says. How can this be? I'm a virgin. It was an honest question. So he gave her an honest answer. But isn't it interesting when Zechariah was told by the same angel, your wife who's barren is going to have a son. And he says, basically, in so many words, how can this be? The angel says, all right, fine. You're not going to be able to talk now until the baby's born. Hmm, why was that? Well, because one of them asked with sort of a skeptic, sort of, I don't know if this is true. I don't get it. Don't think you're telling the truth. Another one simply asked, I don't understand how that can even happen. Attitude, heart attitude was the difference there. So how can God raise up a nation to invade a people and then punish them for it? Because he's God and because they were doing exactly what their sinful hearts wanted to do. That's the answer. And so he says, I'm going to pluck them up from their land. These Babylonians, they do get plucked up from their land. Another nation comes and invades them. You might remember the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Heart of gold. I mean, heart of gold. (laughs) No. Head of gold. Chest was silver and then bronze and then iron and then iron and clay. Remember that? And it represented all these nations. So the silver nation was the one that invaded the golden nation, which was Babylon. So God does exactly what he says he's going to do. I'm going to pluck up them from their land. And then the next part of verse 14, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And he does that too, because you might remember the people of Israel were allowed to leave the land and go back to Israel, weren't they? Ezra, Nehemiah, all about that. So God's prophesying something here, and it happens just the way he says. The theme of verse 15 next is of restoring Judah. And that's going to be developed more in the book, verses 30 through 33. Talk a lot more about this. But I believe this verse next is talking about the people of Israel. And I believe verse 16 is talking about the nations. And I believe verse 17 is talking about them both. And let's look into why. Verse 15, Israel. Verse 16, the nations. Verse 17, both. Look at verse 15. After I plucked them up, that's Israel, I will again have compassion on them, and I'll bring them each to his heritage, and each to his 
land. I believe he's talking about Judah here. After I have plucked them up, what's the plucking them up? Rescuing them from the people that came and invaded them. I'm going to pluck them up. Look, and he says, and I will again have compassion on them. And each, um, and I will bring them each to his heritage and each to his land. I believe this is talking about Israel. Why? Well, because look what it says. I will again have compassion on them. I'm going to do it again. Had he had compassion on the wicked nations around at, at any point in time? Had he done compassionate things towards them in the past? No, except I guess the compassion are not killing them all when they sinned. That kind of general grace that he has upon all of us. But this, I will again have compassion. Has God had compassion on Israel at, at any point in the past? <laughs> 100%. Number one, by calling them to be his people at all. Number two, when he rescued them out of Egypt. Remember how they showed how thankful they were to God at the foot of the mountain when Moses went up on the mountain to get the law? Remember how they showed, we're so thankful he rescued us. This is how thankful we are. We're going to enter into all kind of debauchery and make a golden calf. He had to have compassion on them there. For their sin. And as they were wandering through the wilderness, they said, Oh, we are so thirsty. You brought us out here to kill us, Moses. Would that we would have just stayed in Egypt. We were better off there. And God said, Let me give them water. I'll have compassion on them. They're not acting like they need any, and I shouldn't give them any. And then what about when they said, We hate this manna, we loathe this manna? And God said, Fiery serpents, release. God had compassion on them there. God has compassion on them again and again and again during the time of the judges, right? So verse 15, I believe, is definitely talking about the people of Israel. Second reason I believe it is as well, he says, I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. Well, the word heritage has already been mentioned, hasn't it? In verse 14, Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Now, if you're reading the NIV, the New King James, the King James, or the New American Standard, all these other popular ones, for verse 14, they actually have that word heritage as inheritance. But it's the same Hebrew word as we find in verse 15. Heritage, heritage. Same Hebrew word, though a lot of translations translate the first one, inheritance, and the second one, heritage. They're both the same Hebrew word, same word there. That's also another reason why I believe he's talking about Israel here. Now you're saying, Cohen, okay, wow, you labor in this point. Number one, because what I said earlier, words are important. And you need to be a student of this book and look at words because God doesn't just throw out words haphazardly. The ones that he's inspired are important. And if you're going to understand the scriptures, you need to wrestle with these words just like you need to wrestle with the truths of how can God be just and merciful? You just accept it. You say, okay, cool. But how can that be? We're going to talk about that. You wrestle with those things. You need to wrestle with truth. It doesn't mean that you doubt it. It just means you're saying, I want to understand it better. Just like Mary wanted to understand better. We're wrestling with this also because it's important because he says, after I pluck them up, I will again have a compassion on them. Here's that gem that I was talking about. And I'll bring him each to his heritage, each to his land. God 
who's going to have compassion on his people once again. Here's the gem. This is good news. He's not throwing them off forever. He's saying, I'm willing to be merciful to you too. I will bring you back. But not only merciful to them, merciful to the nations as well, merciful to these evil neighbors. Look at verse 16. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, just to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. See, this verse is about the neighboring nations. Why do I think that? Well, because he makes a distinction between them and who? My people. Do you see that? I'll do this to them. I'll teach, if they learn the ways of my people, there's, a, there's this distinction between whoever he's talking about here and his people. This is why I believe this text is talking about these neighboring evil nations. Also, he says, if they learn to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. So these are former Baal worshipers who taught his people to swear by Baal. So I believe this is talking about the neighboring nations. This is great because God's saying, I'm just not interested in having compassion on my people and bringing them back to their land one day. I will also forgive my evil neighbors who stretched out their hand to cause my people to sin and then also invaded them and took by force the promised land. I am even willing to be merciful to them. That's great news. So because of those two clues, that's why I believe verse 16 is talking about the nations, because of those two clues we saw again, where he says, again, have compassion on them and his heritage. That's why I believe verse 15 is talking about the Jews. I get clues here. Look for those clues in scriptures. God is speaking to you through the word, and it is rich, and it is such a good meal. And every portion of that meal is meant to be enjoyed and digested. So when you don't diligently and thoroughly look at all these words, you're missing out on part of the meal. You're missing out on a nutritious diet that can help you fight sin and have joy and peace as you walk in this world. Look at verse 17, though. Now he lumps them together. How do we know that? Verse 17, but if any nation, anyone, any of them, Jew, Gentile, don't care if any nation whatsoever will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Why? Because he's also a just God. If any nation will not listen, listen to what? Listen to the truth of the word of God. Make God ultimate. See God as ultimate for who he is. That's why he mentioned in verse 16, people swearing by his name. They'll learn to swear by my name as the Lord lives. What do you swear by? You usually swear by things that are super duper important, right? You've heard people say, I swear on my mother's grave and things like that, right? Shows how high he, he, he loved his mother, how important she was to him. And then, of course, you hear people say things like, I swear to God, 
You've heard people say that, right? I don't use that phrase. I never do. Number one, I don't think I have to. I don't need to say things like, I swear, or even, I promise. You know why? Because if I'm saying it, it's true. I don't need to bump it up to another standard so that, you know, this, you really, really, really should believe me now because I'm saying I promise or I swear. No, if I'm saying it, it's true. That's why, I, that's why, one, believe, that's why one reason I believe Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Our speech as Christians should be just that, pure and truthful. If I say it, it should be believed. Why? Well, because that's how Jesus talked. It actually really upsets me when I find out, and this doesn't happen often, but I have found out before that people were upset about this or that because they thought I meant something other than what I said. They were all upset, and I said, well, why were you upset? Don't you remember when I said this? And the person said, yeah, I remember that. Okay, don't you remember when I said this? And he said, yeah, I remember that. And I said, and don't you remember how I ended the conversation by saying this? Yes, I remember that. Well, then why would you think I meant the opposite? Well, well, we're just struggling, and maybe the devil's doing this and that. I'm like, I thought, you should not have gone away from that conversation thinking I meant anything other than what I said. But when people swear by God's name, what they're showing in their heart is, I believe there's nothing higher than this. There's nothing higher than the Lord. And so when they would say, as the Lord lives this shall be done to that man. Or as the Lord lives, I will give this much of my whatever to this person for this. Because people in in the Bible did that. They're using the Lord's name to say there's nothing higher. So that's the change that has to happen in people's hearts. They have to listen and hear the word of God and believe it. And then see that God is uppermost. And you will see that he's uppermost when God changes your heart. When you're born again, Everything changes. Everything changes. I walked the aisle and said a prayer and got baptized when I was 11 or 12. But then when I was 19, I truly came to know the Lord. And I can tell you, there was a massive difference. Huge difference. Why? Because at 11 or 12, I was just scared I was going to go to hell and I learned some things about God. 19, I came to know God. And those who don't come to know him, if they won't listen, they refuse his word, I will utterly pluck them up and destroy them. Why? Because he's a God of justice. He will give them what they deserve. But how can he do this? Proverbs 17, 15 says this. Proverbs 17, 15. Listen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Justifying the wicked. If you're sitting in here this morning, would you consider yourself, if you're saved, you would consider yourself justified, wouldn't you? You're just. God's made you just. All right? So what's up with this verse then? He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The Lord's an abomination to the Lord. The Lord's justified you, and you're wicked, right? 
How does God do this? How does God have mercy upon the wicked? How does he look at them and justify them and say, you are now just? I'm telling you, I've talked to many people who can't answer that question. It's just say, oh, because he's nice? Because he's loving? Yes, he is nice and loving. He's good and upright in all that he does. So how does he do it? Well, how he does it is Romans 3. Romans 3, 23 through 27. This is the answer to the question. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, okay, as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did God do through Christ Jesus? Whom God put forward as a propitiation, payment that satisfies, Jay knows, by his blood. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. That part's key. It doesn't just come into your account. It's received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God does everything right. Therefore, he must punish sin. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. He's both just and merciful because of the cross. He poured out his wrath upon someone who became sin. And I said he became sin because he was never sinful. Jesus Christ took the punishment that should have been ours. He bore the wrath of God as if it was his own. And that's now how God can have mercy upon us. Listen to this. This was from In Touch Ministries. I couldn't find the author of this. Uh, I don't know. As you might know, though, In Touch Ministries is the ministry of Charles Stanley. He went to be with Jesus back in April. This is not Andy Stanley, his son. Very different gentleman. Would not recommend any of his teachings. Charles Stanley, however was more faithful. This is what they said. It's very good. They put it very easy to understand. If the Heavenly Father is good and loving, which He is, why would He allow His Son to be crucified? From our perspective, this is nothing loving in this scene at all. To grasp what happened at the cross, we must first understand that the Lord is righteous and just. He does what's right and never contradicts His word. On the other hand... Mankind is sinful and deserving of punishment. God couldn't simply forgive us because he would then cease to be just. That's what we talked about earlier. How can God forgive you? And justice requires a penalty for sin. Either the Lord has to condemn us all to suffer his wrath or he needed a plan that would satisfy his justice and allow his mercy. Before the foundation of the world, the Lord had such a plan in place. Jesus came to earth to be our sin bearer and the Father placed our guilt and punishment on him because the Savior's payment satisfied justice. Sinful man could be declared righteous. And that's our answer. That's our answer to how can he be both? How can he be both righteous, dish out justice, but also give mercy to me? 
because the Savior's payment satisfied justice. Sinful man could be declared righteous. That's the only thing we're banking on. The fact that God could give compassion to his people and the nations was because if they followed his word, if they listened and obeyed and believed, God put that faith forward and applied it forward to what would happen hundreds of years from that date when the God-man would come and take the punishment upon himself for sinners. And for us, in the new covenant, he applies our faith backwards to what Jesus has already done, the payment that's already been made. Same mercy comes to us that would have come to them. I want you to be able to wrestle with these truths and explain these truths to others because this is a truth that saves us. This is the only reason any of us are going to go to be with the Father one day and have our sins forgiven right now is because this wonderful God-man that was even the hope of these people back then that they didn't even know it yet. Father, this word's precious to us. This gospel message is precious to us, Lord. Without this message, we have no hope. And so, Lord, thank you for what you've done in Christ. And of course, I pray that you would please help us to walk uprightly in this truth, loving it and living it, sharing it with others, Lord, by word and by deed. Lord, and I pray that you would give us grace to live lives worthy of this message. We love you. We pray these things in your son's perfect name. Amen. Amen.